Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Caregiver and Physician Conversations, sponsored by eCareDiary.com. I'm your host, Marjorie Pabst. Please visit my website at mycaregivingcoach.com for many other resources related to your personal advocacy and well-being as a caregiver. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Baron Lerner. Dr. Lerner is a professor of medicine and population health at NYU School of Medicine, and he is the author, author of five books on the history of medicine. Most recently, a book entitled The Good Doctor, A Father, a Son, and the Evolution of Medical Ethics. Welcome, Dr. Baron Lerner. Hi, uh, great to be here. It's great to have you. So um, I just noticed I'm going to throw in a question here about population health. What what does that mean that you're a professor of population health? About I was that. hoping you would know. Uh, <laughs> we are. It's a new. This is a new department here at NYU, um, looking at at global health issues. So how uh, health gets. Um, how how it varies from country to country, how different countries fund their health care, why some countries have better health care than others, why countries that spend more money have worse health outcomes, that sort of epidemiological research. So interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff in light of a lot that's going on in the world from Ebola to our own uh, new health care system in the United States. So very exactly. interesting. Well, um, talk us about the title of your book. I find that a fascinating title, A Father, a Son, and the Evolution of Medical Ethics. It suggests a family evolution as well. Yeah, the book uh, is both sort of a history of medical ethics and also very much a biography and, and an autobiography, so a, a memoir. So I, I thought there's been a lot written about how medical ethics has changed over time, but I thought it would be interesting to do it through the prism of my father's career and my career. Uh, both of us uh, went into medicine and, and wanted to be very ethical physicians, but in his era, being an ethical physician meant you were very paternalistic and wanted to make all the decisions for your patients. And in my era, it was just the opposite, which is that patients had the right to decide what they, what they did and did not want done. So it seemed interesting to me to explore why medicine had changed through my dad's career and my own. Very, very interesting. Um, and does, is part of that medical evolution um, the progress that's been made uh, from pharmaceuticals to uh, surgical techniques and so on, do the, does that type of evolution also impact um, ethical issues for physicians and caregivers and patients? Well, I, I think it does in a lot of ways. I mean, things have become a lot more complicated and a lot more uh <clears throat> you know, technological, really, in medicine. So when, I think when my dad started practicing medicine, there had only been antibiotics for a, a couple of decades. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, you know, there were no CT scans and no MRI scans, and a lot of medicine was more hands-on and the physical examination and taking a history. And now uh, medicine is very different. Obviously, we get a lot of scans. Doctors don't necessarily have as much time to talk to patients. 
And I think as a result, that's partly why medicine has changed and doctors don't feel that it's their position anymore to make all the decisions and tell people what to do. They'd rather order tests and talk to patients about their options. So I do think that technology does play in. Yes. And what, how, do you, um, how, do you, how do you feel about, um, it certainly gives the patients and caregivers more information to have, you know, batteries of tests and so on. Um, how do you, do you feel like are there downsides or upsides to that? How do you kind of negotiate those waters as a physician? Well, I think in general there, that most things are, are an upside. I think there's been a lot of progress. I think our ability to diagnose disease and treat disease has dramatically improved over the last uh, decades, uh, our ability to prevent disease. So if you look at rates of heart disease, for example, have gone down dramatically. Uh, we can cure infections that were invariably fatal in my father's era. So there's, the technology is done a remarkable amount for us in our ability to treat patients, but I do think it has led to some depersonalization of medicine. I think that once you order all these tests and you sit around looking at the pictures and you're not spending time with patients, you potentially lose something. You lose the doctor-patient communication. You lose the caregiver-patient relationship that I think is a, still remains at the heart of medicine. I, I think that that's what patients still want, even though they want the technology as well. So it's a ongoing challenge to integrate technology into a patient-centered medicine. It is. It's, a, I guess, one of the challenges of our time. I often encourage uh, patients and caregivers uh, with whom I work to, in the end, sometimes just trust your own gut and intuition that, in the end, um, it can come down to that as well in terms of making decisions. Um, what, what do you think about intuition and ethics? Do they, there's a relationship there, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that a lot of, um, a lot of what we do uh, in medicine is intuition, even though people don't like to talk about it that much. Uh, <laughs> I think that there are many things, many instances where we don't have definitive information. So, you know, I can tell you definitively you should stop smoking because you're likely, much more likely to get lung cancer and heart disease. But if we're talking about whether you should get a mammogram at age 45, uh, I don't have such a great answer for you. I have a lot of pros and cons, and I think that intuition and personal interaction comes into play in those situations. And I think patients have to decide, are they the sort of person who want to get extra testing? Are they the sort of people who don't like to get tests if they're not such good tests. And I think doctors can play a big role here in knowing their patients, right? Uh, if, yeah. And that, that was something my, that's something my dad was particularly good at, I think, was he got to know his patients so intimately that he could help them make decisions that were very, very personal and not yeah. necessarily data-driven. Yes, exactly. Um, how, you know... Obviously, you have great admiration for your father. Um, have you developed any ways 
uh, in this uh, time-deprived, uh, it seems like, environment to utilize some of his yeah. techniques, but in perhaps a smaller time frame? Have you figured out ways to, to, to manage that relationship with patients? Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a great question because I, that's something I try to work at, at at the end of the book was to talk about ways in which in a limited time, uh, limited periods of time, how you can try to incorporate some of what he did. And he would, would have been the first to say that the time that he could spend with patients was a great luxury. He was an infectious diseases consultant. He did not have a large private practice, so he didn't have a lot of the paperwork that was associated with running his own practice. So he did get to spend more time. He liked to go back to the wards in the afternoon and see his patients again, that sort of thing. But the reality today is that's much harder to do. So I I do like to remember some of his pearls, really. Um, He was very good at picking up on patients' distress. It was one thing he was good at. He had a lot of, we're back to intuition almost in a sense, that he yeah. could tell when something, something was going wrong and something had changed and he would ask patients about it, even if it wasn't specifically about an infection. Um, he, he tried to devote a small amount of time to each visit to talk about something completely non-medical, the patient's family, patient's education, patient's vacation, that sort of thing. Uh, I try to do that as well. Even if I have a relatively limited amount of time, I say, let's just talk about something different than your gallbladder today or your abdominal pain now that we got that out of the way. Uh, That's another thing that I liked uh, to do that I think I drew on from his practice over the years, those sorts of things. Yeah, that's great. You know, in one minute or two minutes uh, to bring in the personal is such a wonderful way, I think, to work with caregivers and patients. And I personally always appreciate that when a physician does that with me or my loved one. Um, so you you mentioned earlier that one of the big prompts for writing this book is the vast difference between the way your father practiced medicine and the way you practice medicine, and then obviously carrying forward some of the key things that he did that you can now apply in your own practice despite changing times. Are there other, were there other things that prompted you to write this book? Well, uh, my dad kept journals, so for years and years, really starting on my very first birthday, he started writing an annual note to me and then later on to my sister about what had gone on in the family that year, uh, what, uh, you know, his, his thoughts about life. And over the years, he started writing more and more, not just on our birthdays, and he started writing about medical topics and he started writing about his cases. So I had a great repository of information to draw on when I was working on the book. Um, and I, I thought it was useful because I thought his, the sort of medicine he practiced is sort of a dying art. So to be able to bring that forward to another generation and his words, I think, was a great opportunity. And then, of course, I wanted to write the book as a tribute to him as well. I think uh, he was an amazing doctor. He got very discouraged toward the end of his career with the changes in medicine. But I wanted to put what he had done as a physician out there, not just to myself, but to particularly to younger doctors to suggest that there still are ways in which 
you can be an incredibly devoted physician, even though the hours we spend at our crafts these days are less than they used to be. Yeah, yeah. So um, I have uh, purchased your book, and I've read some of it, and I can see ways that uh, as a caregiver um, and um, the other work I do, there are things in your book that I feel like I would that really help me next time I go to the doctor, and so um, I think that I would encourage caregivers to read this. Is what I'm saying that uh, that not only physicians but certainly caregivers and their and their families that this would be a really good book to read um, to change the nature, if you will, of doctor visits. So thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> um, I know there's been some family illness, as there are with most families. So how did a personal family illness, uh, how, what, how did that um, inform the writing of your book and this whole issue of medical ethics? Well, this was, uh, you know, there, there were, we, we've sort of talked about, many of the virtues of my dad's career to this point. Uh, there's, there's some controversy in the book as well. Uh, the story that starts the book is a case in which my dad decided himself to prevent other doctors from performing CPR. A patient had just died. It was a patient who was dramatically ill for months and years and was getting worse and worse. And he felt it was time for her to die, and she did not have a do not resuscitate order, and the other doctors were prepared to pound on her chest and break her ribs and with the expectation, really, that she was never going to get better, and he didn't want to see that happen. He had too much respect for her and knew her too well. But what he did was very atypical, to, to throw his body on top of the patient and prevent his colleagues from doing CPR. So... This sort of controversial thing in the book was almost even more dramatic, I think, when my dad got involved in taking care of some of my relatives. So some of the stories I tell in the book are uh, that my dad got very involved in taking care of both of my grandmothers, my mother's mother and his mother, when they got very, very ill at the end of life. <clears throat> and here I do think he crossed the line and he really, even though he wanted to do what was right for them and was a great doctor and knew them very well, he really overstepped his bounds, I think, in essentially trying to take over their medical care at the end of their lives. Um, so part of the challenge of writing the book was to understand ways in which my dad, uh, his devotion to medicine for the most part, benefited his patients dramatically, but at times uh, led him, I think, to cross the line and try to do too much for people when it was really better to back off. Yes, yes, a fine balance. Um, you know, I, I think uh, encouraging caregivers to have a plan and to have a living will and those kinds of things can help clarify uh, issues as well and I'm sure that uh, um, more of that is being done than used to be and um, perhaps in this new environment um, your dad would have it wouldn't have been uh, quite as a dramatic a, a thing for him if he had you know if those kinds of things had been in place as well 
Yeah, I, look, I, you know, I think my dad um, understood how things were changing, and he was not opposed by any means to things like advanced directives and living wills. Uh, he knew that was the wave of the future and that patients were going to take a larger role in coming up with end-of-life decisions. Um, yeah. But <laughs> nevertheless, in, in his... Uh, you know, in some of his last acts as a doctor, I think that he bucked that system a little bit and, and felt that he still knew what was best, even though he knew times were changing. That, that's what gives the book, I think, some tension is yeah. a loving, intelligent, smart doctor both wanting to do what he thought needs to be done at the same time, trying to respect the new vision of patients' rights that was coming into medicine. And it was, it was a huge conflict for him. Most of us now understand that patients' rights has won the day and that we need to honor what patients and families want uh, without, of course, forgetting our duty to try to advise them as best we can. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. And I agree with you. I've not finished the book, but I understand the tension you're talking about and how you attempted to write about it, and I think it is what informs the book, um, the whole issue of we're all human. And I think it will give caregivers and families hope that, you know, so often caregivers uh, uh, question themselves afterward, and families do. Did we do the right thing? Um, did we make the right decision? Did we go too far? Did we not go far enough? And I think that this book gives us all hope to say, look, you do the best you can and in the circumstance that you're in. And um, so for me, that's what is uh, really resonating with your book, uh, Dr. Lerner. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and also, you know, certainly try to use as much expertise as you can. I mean, we now fortunately live in a world where there's more and more palliative care specialists and there's more access yeah. to hospice and things like that, obviously, where people are expert in these exact sorts of questions and can hopefully guide patients and families with these very difficult decisions. Yeah. Um, are, there, um, are there specific ethical dilemmas that you think most or many caregivers will face? So the, which, one, which kinds of ethical issues do you see caregivers facing on a fairly regular basis? Well, when I've been traveling around the country giving talks about the book, I, you know, I, I was surprised in a sense to hear how many people came up to me who work in ICUs and are telling me about cases in which patients who are very, very end stage are getting overly aggressive care. So that's something I think that we thought we might have fixed or we were along the way to fixing, but it was a little disturbing to hear that so many modern caregivers were still struggling with cases where care was being given, treatments were being given that really weren't indicated. So I think that's something, certainly anybody who works in a hospital or an ICU, I think is, is confronting today. Um, so that, that's certainly one major thing. I, I think another topic that came up in my dad's world was the issue of medical errors. <clears throat> and do you disclose when an error happens in the hospital or in the clinic? And certainly in my dad's era, the answer was no. You sort of kept it quiet amongst your peers. Uh, but times have changed again. <coughs> Excuse me. And now certainly the teaching is that we do try to give out as much information as we can to people when something goes wrong because it's their right to know it. 
Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yes, I can attest to that. The issue of treatment in ICU, of a personal experience with that, you know, when is enough enough? And uh, mm-hmm. when, do, you know, and, uh, and and being in that situation, it's not easy. It's, uh, but I, I think looking back, I probably could have been helped by having some guidelines, if you will, or something uh, that would have helped me make that decision because I was pretty much alone in deciding, well, when are we going to not do another blood transport, blood transfusion, for example. So um, that would have been helpful. Um, I think that's the real, yeah, yeah, I was ahead. just going to say the real challenge. The real challenge is in a world where we now give patients and family members the right to make decisions. I think sometimes we leave them out in a limb. It sounds like in your situation, even though it's nice you were be, being given the ability to make decisions, sometimes you don't have the information or expertise to do it. So my dad absolutely would have said that's a wrong, the wrong thing to do, and, and it's very important to provide people with enough information to make decisions or to guide them in their decision-making. Yes. Um, interestingly enough, and share with the audience, um, uh, to, this, to this specific experience of mine, uh, one doctor, yeah, there were like five or six specialists at the end. One of the doctors briefly mentioned, but only in passing, the word hospice. And because I had never really, you know, had experience with that, I wasn't quite sure what they were referring to. I didn't realize that the suggestion was being made that my loved one go into hospice and what that meant. Um, and so I kind of soldiered on it for a few more weeks, thinking that maybe um, uh, my loved one could uh, perhaps rise above his illness and get out of the hospital. So, you know, I think that that kind of lack of clarity um, is something that, that um, we all need to work on together. Absolutely. And one would hope that, when hospice gets, that first thing it should get mentioned, uh, ideally get mentioned early on, not just when it's the last few moments, uh, but yeah. that it's done in a way that patients and family members can comprehend what the concept is. So I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Because in the throes of something like that, you're in a, in a mode of disbelief anyway. So you're not really hearing um, always the realities of what's, what is going on. So, yeah. Right. And I'll put a plug in, obviously, for other people besides doctors in the hospital who often are better than doctors at this. Uh, nurses, yeah. uh, pastor, pastoral care, social workers, um, they often have good training in this. They often have more time to discuss issues like hospice. So people should not just rely on doctors. Exactly. And that was something that I did. And uh, if I were to do it again, I would certainly rely on a broader range of medical people. Um, What suggestions and tips do you have for families and caregivers listening in today? Um, And what what kinds of tips would you put forward for caregivers as they face ethical issues? I mean, what what are some ways to manage this? Well, I I, I think the best thing for all people involved is early communication uh, and and documentation. So I I think the the main problem is that we often 
are uncomfortable talking about obvious ethical issues and medical issues that are clearly going to come up. I find I'm guilty of this myself in my practice. It's Nobody wants to bring up bad news, but I think most people want to talk about it. And if you can have some early, honest discussions about what people's goals are, who their team is, who are going to help them, what they would and wouldn't want, then when there's a moment of crisis, you've got some information to go on. The, the really horrible situation, I think, occurs when someone comes into the emergency room and they're breathing at 40 times a minute, uh, uh, you know, and, and no one can get any coherent discussion going, and that's when you're trying to get some definitive answers, and I don't think that's good for anybody. So I would really encourage patients to get their doctors to talk about this, and I encourage caregivers to try to broach the subject with people earlier than they currently do. Yes, yes. The whole issue of advocacy. Here's what I need. Here's what my family needs. Here's what we've discussed. Um, we would like to know more uh, detail. You know this kind of thing. Um, absolutely, exactly. sort of the more proactive mm-hmm. approach. Um, always, I think I, I, you rarely need a doctor who doesn't want to hear what the patient and caregiver really need um, in terms of information and so on. So, great, great tips. Well, I think you should share with our listeners how to find your book. Oh, you're so nice. Um, you, you can find my book where you find all I, – I am not boycotting Amazon, so <laughs> I can't afford to do it. So uh, anyone could go to Amazon.com or any of the other booksellers, and the book's called The Good Doctor, uh, and it's, it's on there. And I think it's at a discount, too, so uh, if people are interested. That's probably the easiest way to find it. I also have a website, drbaronlearner.com. Uh, that has some more information on that and some other articles that I've written on the exact topics that we've talked about. Great. So those articles would be found on your website as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Great. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you return uh, sometime in the future to be with us again. Um, Ethics are... Uh, one of those issues I don't think we can learn enough about. And uh, particularly um, in your book, you, you provide stories, as you mentioned earlier. And I think stories are such an illuminating way to, uh, talk, to display and demonstrate the grayness uh, rather than the black and whiteness of ethical issues in our time. And so I really appreciate your book. I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. And... Um, why don't you mention your website one more time for those listeners who may have been scurrying to get a pen or pencil to jot it down. Okay, good. You're officially my marketing director. Uh, www. dot doctor d r just d r Baron Learner b a r r o n l e r n e r dot com doctor Baron Learner dot com has uh, a link to the book as well as as mentioned. <clears throat> a bunch of articles I've written on this and and some other articles that draw on some of my other books as well. So there's a lot of information there. Great. And again, um, Dr. Lerner's book is A Father, A Son, or excuse me, The Good Doctor, colon, A Father, A Son, and the Evolution of Medical Ethics. And for those of you who want friends to listen in, I remind you archives of the show will also be on uh, Eat Her Diary, as well as my website, mycaregivingcoach.com. So if you'd like to listen back or encourage others to listen, please do so. 
Again, thank you so much, Dr. Baron Lerner, and we look forward to uh, talking with you sometime in the future. Great. Thank you, Marjorie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.